I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I am so excited to bring you this week's guest, Ellen Miller. Not only is she a tennis coach, but she is also a tennis parent and a golf parent and a swim parent and a softball parent and a soccer parent. (laughs) This lady's children, she has four of them, have played pretty much every sport under the sun. And Ellen herself is a master swimmer, but also a competitive tennis player and a phenomenal tennis coach who came up through multiple sports in her childhood, but gravitated toward tennis rather late in the game, wound up developing pretty quickly and played college tennis at Rice University and had a phenomenal college career. She's lived all over the world, literally, and is back in Houston now where she is running her local NJTL chapter. She's coaching uh, junior team tennis teams. She's coaching individual players. And she's also very involved with the USTA's Net Generation program. So without further ado, my conversation with Ellen Miller. Be sure and check out the show notes so that you have her contact info. Ellen Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because we got to each other when I posted something on Facebook looking for guests for the podcast, and you answered the call, and you have such a wide experience range in the sport of tennis, but also in other sports. And so I think, you know, your story is one that is going to be really helpful to the Parenting Aces audience. So thank you for doing this. And let's start out by having you tell us how you got to tennis. Wow. Well, I, I grew up in the years of, you know, Chrissy Everett and, uh, you know, Tracy Austin playing when tennis took up took off in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, my dad loved tennis. He played all sorts of sports, loved tennis. I was actually a swimmer up until that point and uh, took up tennis. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, so I learned how to hit on the wall, on my basement wall, and I do that for hours on end. So kind of taught myself how to play tennis and um, made the switch over. When I was about 13, I switched over to tennis permanently and uh, and just, you know, it took off. I still played other sports in high school, though, basketball, softball. I was an all-sport athlete. And, um, but then, you know, took it a little bit further, got very focused, and um, attended Rice University on a scholarship and played tennis there for four years. So, um, yeah, it's been a great journey. That's fantastic. And now you're a coach. Yes. Uh, I've been coaching off and on over 30 years. And I say off and on because we lived overseas for about 12 of those years uh, in Germany and Switzerland. And I had four kids. So, you know, I had to sort of juggle a lot of things at home. But uh, got back into it bit by bit, mostly part time when we lived in uh, the Woodlands, Texas. And then got more into it full time we moved, when we moved up to Washington, D.C. And uh, now I work full time for the Houston Tennis Association, NJTL, and direct uh, a competitive 
program for them. And I'm also in charge of their coaching education. What has been, in your opinion, the most significant change in the way we develop players in this country? One of the things that I've seen, um, especially for the young children, uh, getting more and more into tennis, as we say, is this focus on just tennis. And it's this race to get really, really good, really, really fast. And I don't think that people realize that tennis is a sport where, you know, the average age of the players, men or women, are between the ages of, let's make it a random big number because I know what the average number is, but between 25 and 27, it's, it's an older number. And I think, you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on these kids to, to develop so quickly and you know, pulling them out of school to be homeschooled and uh, sending them to academies to, you know, pulling them away from their families. And I think it's, it might be good for some kids, but it, it, it's an eye-opening experience for a lot of parents. And to be honest, it scares a lot of parents. Mm-hmm. So I, I would have to say that's probably the biggest thing. And it pulls these kids into the sport solely. In other, in other words, they give up any other sports that they might be able to do. And I'm not totally sure that that's a good thing. Uh, I think we see repetitive use injuries. We see see kids burn out. Um, I think you also see kids come up through the sport who don't benefit from other sports. The movement abilities that they pick up from other sports, like say from basketball or, you know, the strength aspect coming out of maybe a track and field, um, sprinting, running activities. So I think it's a consideration that we need to look at very closely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research out there now about early specialization and its harmful effects. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about we've got to develop the athlete first, the tennis player second. And you work with players who are coming into the sport for the first time, most of them, right? I mean, you're, you're working Correct. with, yeah. Um, and, and so how do you guide families around that? We have a, a, a burgeoning, a blooming 10 and under program where I am. And I consider myself sort of a, you know, a developmental coach, a 10 and under coach. And then, of course, I, I am high performance certified and played in college and all that. So I can coach all the way up with these kids. But, but I do think um, some of my expertise lies in coaching the young kids. And so I always encourage the parents to let the kids do other sports. I mean, we have a couple kids, like one of the little boys, uh, he does soccer so we don't see him as much as some of the other kids um and uh, some of our other kids play volleyball different sports and I try to you know hear my inner voice saying it's okay for them to do this and sometimes it's hard because I know they're missing practice but I do know you know this little boy who plays soccer for instance has fabulous footwork on the court so he's he's going off and doing another sport that makes him happy and then those skills directly translate into his tennis Mm -hmm. so I know we're still getting that benefit He's just doing something else that day. And I think it's important to keep that in mind, that we want the kids to be happy. And young children don't necessarily know what sport they want to pick. And they need to, they need to keep going along their two tracks or three tracks, whatever they have. And then at some point, they'll make their decision. And I think it's important to also remember that we can't force that decision. That's ultimately their decision and probably falls a little bit with their family as well. But um, we want to keep them happy in the sport, particularly tennis for us. 
and, and hope eventually that they'll make the decision to stay with us. How do you manage expectations, though? So let's say, for example, this little boy that's playing soccer, too. I'm assuming that his peers in your tennis program who aren't playing another sport, they're maybe playing tournaments, they're winning trophies, they're coming back on Monday and, you know, all happy about that. And your soccer player may not be doing that that same level of competitive activity in tennis because he's also doing soccer. I mean, there's, there's got to be some frustration on the parents part, I would think, because maybe some of this little boy's peers are moving along quicker than he is. But how do you explain to them that, listen, by the time it's important, which is, Let's face it, 1516 with college recruiting, that's when it really becomes important. You know, things will level out if if your son decides to stick with tennis. Right. And and that is that is entirely possible. And you know, this little boy and a couple of the kids that we have doing two sports, it's interesting because they remind me a lot of myself growing up. I was just a real good athlete, you know, playing sports. I played so many of them. And this little boy is a terrific athlete. And what's happened so far is he's been able to hang with the kids. He's able to stay on par with them. And then we've gotten them, the kids into JTT. And so the kids, we did a 10 and under uh, orange ball team. And he was able to play with the kids on Sundays because the soccer games are on Saturday. So they're double teaming it, which is kind of interesting. And so right now he's able to do it. And some of our other kids are able to do it as well. So fortunately he hasn't fallen behind. He's pretty much at the top of the pack still. But it is a consideration. And I think it's one of those things that you do have to look closely at is, you know, is this child going to slip behind a little bit? But on the other hand, I still look at it as, as a um, as a double bonus that he's doing both these sports. They're both benefiting his tennis probably more than it's benefiting soccer, but, um, you know, to do the two sports. But uh, right now he's so young, you know, he's, he's 10 and he has so much time. You know, I feel like the kids have so much time and I tell them all the time, even our older kids, look, you need to go through your first years of high school. You don't need to worry so much about what your results are going to give you. We need to be more process oriented. So worry about, are we developing that slice backhand? You know, are we developing that, that key second serve? And I tell the kids, having dealt with college recruiting, if these kids want to go on to college, it doesn't really matter that much until you're in your junior year of, of high school. I mean, I've seen that play out for both of my kids who played NCAA sports. So I keep telling them, you've got a lot of time, you know, just to be doing the right things to stay in the game and develop your game. And I think that will work out. And so far, you know, I've been lucky with the kids I've worked with. And how is the communication with the parents, though? Because a lot of times the kids get it, but the parents don't. Yeah. I mean, our parents, the parents that are that are doing multiple things, they they get it. You know, I think they've heard enough in the media that, oh, you know, you need to focus really soon on your sport and, and, and this is what's out there and college scholarships, you, you better be focused by the time you're, you know, seven. And there's all this crazy stuff out there. But I think the parents, there were a lot of dialogue. I've talked with the parents through this and um, we're at a good place. You know, I let them know that as long as they stay committed, you know, to our sport, to what we're doing and, you know, can continue to hang with the kids that he's playing with, which are orange ball kids right now. He's just getting ready to move up to green. Um, 
you know, we're okay with it. Uh, they know. And I think, you know, a lot of the parents, when they're talked to and made to understand what the process is, I, I think they're okay with it. You know, it calms them down a little bit. You know, the dialogue with parents is so critical. And I think that so many of them, it's been interesting to me because I do early development camps. I'm on the player development side of the USDA um, as a faculty coach. And there I've gotten a great opportunity to work with parents. And we're doing a lot of parent education to tell the parents that, you know, it's not a race to the yellow ball. We want the kids to go through red, orange, and green. And we want these kids to play the level ball that they're competent at. And we'll get to yellow. And I've learned a lot through the early development camps because we do evaluations for the parents. And we talk to the parents about all of this. And it's interesting. Once the parents are on the page with you and they understand what's going on, they actually back off a little bit. And they, and they, 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 they defer to you. They realize that you have a game plan, that you understand what you're talking about. And they're, they're like, okay, we'll go along with this. This sounds plausible. Just tell us what else we need to do. And I think that's incredibly important is to keep that communication line open and actually to have started it in the first place. Well, absolutely. And, and that's a common theme that runs through the Parenting Aces podcast is the yeah. importance of good communication between coach and parent, between coach and player, player and parent, um, everybody involved. And one of the things that it sounds like you're doing really well is establishing a firm level of trust from day one. And I think when parents understand what the coach's plan is. Like you said, you present a game plan to them, they buy into that, then they have trust in you to execute that, to keep them apprised of what's happening, to stay accountable for their child's progress. And it's easier as a parent to step back and entrust your child with a coach when that coach is communicating with you on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny, too, because when I coached up at, um, I was up at the JTCC in Maryland for almost five years. And it's funny, I'm still in touch with all those families that I coached up there. And many of them, I coached not just their first and second child, but, you know, their third and fourth child. So, you know, that relationship for me has been longstanding, you know, and some of these kids are, you know, playing in national tournaments now. Some of the kids I've worked with over the years are going off to college. So, it's really important to me to keep that relationship up and even the parents that I don't work with now because I live in Texas, you know, know that they can email me and shoot a message my way and ask for some advice. And uh, it's critical because I think, you know, you, it's for all of us, whatever we're doing, it's always nice to have founding boards and to bounce things off of people. But again, to have that, that critical dialogue because it is complicated. The world is going so fast and there's so many demands upon us and on our kids and I think if we can if we can have, you know, that communication open and have that sounding block, it just makes life a whole lot easier. Absolutely. One of your roles is that you're the director of coaching education and player development for Houston's NJTL. And I would love Correct. for you to talk a little bit about the NJTL and what it does and, you know, what role it plays in your community. Yeah, so the NJPL in Houston um, serves the greater part of Houston, which if you can imagine, um, I think it's the third largest state, maybe the, 
city. Maybe it's the fourth. But anyway, we're talking a big city, big uh, square radius. So we reach a lot of kids. Uh, we reach over 3,000 kids a year. Um, and, you know, our kids day is 1,000 kids. So we're reaching kids from all different backgrounds all over the city. And our programs take place in the Houston City Parks uh, sites at their tennis courts. So we are um, all around Houston. And um, I believe we have something like 32 sites, if I'm not mistaken. So we have quite a few coaches in the summer. We bump up to around 60 coaches. So we have a, we reach a lot of kids. And it's really exciting for me to reach those kids and to work with those kids because we're talking about a subset of the tennis population that doesn't often get, you know, to play tennis. And we want them to have the highest quality tennis program we possibly can. And that's another thing, you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard when you have a group of kids at a Houston park and you have high numbers, you know, because our programs are free for the kids. So, you know, we work hard with the coaches to make sure that they can, you know, that they know how to work with big groups of kids. We put the new next generation curriculum, the community curriculum into play, the, this summer and we're continuing this fall and it's been huge for us you know it, it's it's preset lessons and they're really fun really fun games really fun athletic skill development activities so it's been wonderful so we're building up our houston park site and our goal out of that is to take these kids that come to these city park sites and then build what we would call a tournament players group out of that so take the kids who really love the game who want to take their game to the next level. And then I'm in charge of that tournament players group. And so we just started it last year and uh, we've had tremendous success. Some of the kids went out to play some of their first tournaments in JTT and uh, we did really well. The kids finished at the top of the JTT pile, you know, for their age groups. And uh, we've had a couple tournament wins and kids finishing, you know, they belong in these tournaments, you know, they're getting through to the third round, fourth round, some of them are losing the first round, but they're winning in consolation. So we're in there. And that's what's so exciting for these kids is that they're getting that chance that other kids get all the time. Well, we all know how expensive junior tennis development can yeah. be. So, I mean, I think it's awesome that that you guys are running these free programs. What kind of financial support do these kids get that are moving into your high-performance tournament group? They get support from many places. I know the USTA is very generous to our foundation. Um, Chase, the bank, uh, Chase Bank has also mm-hmm. been very generous. Um, and and we're now the sole beneficiary of the um, the U.S. Men's Clay Court Championships that are held just around the corner from us at River Oaks Country Club. And um, we are also the beneficiary of some other events. Um, around town, which really helps us. And uh, then we do a big gala every year that also brings in funds. And then the Houston Tennis Association runs women's leagues. And much of the proceeds from those um, events and tournaments comes our way for the kids. So it's really kind of it's this big group effort, if you will, that funnels money over to our NJTL. And I'll tell you something, it's been a godsend for us. You know, I mean, the kids that I work with are just, I mean, first of all, some of them are phenomenal athletes. They love the game. They want to play. And so we scramble, you know, to make sure that they have car rides just to get to practice. I mean, some of the families have one car, you know, that they have the ability to get to a tournament, 
you know, so we, you know, our families look out for each other. It's a different dynamic than you see at a club. And it's a lot more work, I'll tell you that much. Um, but it is incredibly rewarding. That's for sure. That's fantastic. I, I'm just, I'm so thrilled to hear that y'all have the support financially that you need to help these kids really, you know, grow and progress and thrive in the sport. Because I think traditionally in many communities, NJTLs are set up and, and the mission of the NJTL is so fantastic. But if the funding isn't there to support the kids that are coming into the programs, then, you know, they really can't do their work. And I, I just, I think it's fantastic that you'll have the support that you've just mentioned. I mean, the corporate sponsorship, the event sponsorship, the USTA sponsorship, the local community. I mean, it's just awesome to hear. I'm, I'm thrilled because this is not a common story. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it really is, as I said, it's this coming together of a lot of people who are passionate about tennis. And um, we had um, two courts over at our Sunnyside um, facility in Houston that were in need of repair. And last year, the it was a, it was a conglomeration of professional men's players who um, put money together to help us resurface those courts. They all played at the at the uh, clay court championship this past April. And they put together money so that we could resurface the courts. And so the kids got to go out and hit with them. And it was just, it was just terrific. I mean, it was so generous of these guys to, to contribute back to us. And, and even, you know, getting the courts obviously is going to allow many, many, many more kids to learn how to play. But also just the kids who are with these pros on the court, you know, they were just, it was so exciting for them. So they Absolutely. kind of see what. You know, and one of the pros, Francis Tiafo, took one of our little boys aside and said, hey, you know, you could be you could be a good player, you know, if you work on a couple things, you know, and that means so much to these kids. You know, they look up to these guys with, you know, wide eyes. And um, so every little bit helps. Every little I, bit helps us. I totally remember when that happened last year and um, yeah. it was all over social media. It was really awesome. And um, yeah, I mean, some of the players on the pro tour really have the biggest hearts and understand the importance of giving back. And I'm just always so excited when, when I get news of that, because I think it speaks volumes about our sport and the people who participate in our sport. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to switch, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, if you don't mind, Ellen. And I want to talk about now your role as a tennis parent, because you have four children, which, oh my God, <laughs> and yeah. um, out of the four, you have one who is currently playing college tennis, but you, your other, all your kids have been involved in sport. So I'd love to hear about your experience as a parent, bringing up your kids in the sport and then Let's kind of talk about the recruiting process a bit. Okay. Yeah, I mean, sports, you know, I always say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I played so many sports growing up. I think in high school, I think I played five sports. Um, but I, I loved so many sports. It was hard to, to pick. And um, my kids were, you know, raised in that same vein. So they all did multiple sports growing up. All of them swam. Um, and then they branched out into their their uh, respective sports. And uh 
my oldest son played uh, collegiate golf at University of Maryland, and um, my daughter now is playing collegiate tennis at St. Francis University just outside Pittsburgh. And so, you know, having played sports as long as I had and then played in college, I knew, you know, a little bit about what to expect. But, um, you know, we learned a lot through my son, you know, through the recruiting process. He was a very good golfer, probably top, he was top 75 when the, when he was recruited. And um, so it was, you know, we learned a lot there. And um, he, like what? when we got some, um the importance of knowing who you're going to play for. I mean, one of the things I always say to parents is, is when you decide you want to play a sport in college, you are no longer just a student. You are now a student athlete. And I've always told my kids, you need to understand that you have two jobs in school now. You need to go in there and make sure that you are academically eligible to play a sport. And that means you need to be responsible and not get sidelined by too much, you know, college stuff so that you stay eligible, you're ready to play, you show up, you're ready to play on the weekend or whenever you compete, and that you um, you do both of these things really well. You have to keep your studies up to be eligible. You need to keep your sports up to keep your scholarship. And so there's two very distinct, although intertwined jobs that you have. And so we learned that through my son. And, you know, he was he played with an individual on his team who became academically ineligible his junior year. And, you know, this this boy was a top 10 golfer in the country. I mean, we're talking a legitimate player. And, you know, my son saw that what happens when you don't keep both of these up. And so, you know, my daughter coming into college, you know, later than her brother, she knew that whole story. She had heard lots of stories about that. So you need to pay attention to that as a parent. And you also need to make sure that you under, you know who the coach is. Is the coach going to be, you know, fair and transparent so that your child gets to play based on their merit, based on what they bring to the table? And then you also have to look at the university and say, hey, you know, is the university going to be able to support my child in the sport when they're there, if they need help? I mean, my son ran into it a little bit in Maryland. Uh, he got a lot of help. They were actually pretty good, but he was a chemical engineering major. I think he was the only engineering major in their golf team in the history of their team. And so, you know, it made it difficult getting him tutors in, you know, um, some of these really difficult classes. So um, those are things to keep in mind, I think, as a parent, uh, because it's uh, and I think the other thing you have to keep in mind, and this is something I looked at very, very closely, was is your child going to be able to compete on the team that they want to play? I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I am so excited to bring you this week's guest, Ellen Miller. Not only is she a tennis coach, but she is also a tennis parent and a golf parent and a swim parent and a softball parent and a soccer parent. <laughs> Um, this lady's children, she has four of them, have played pretty much every sport under the sun. And Ellen herself is a master swimmer, but also a competitive tennis player and a phenomenal tennis coach who came up through multiple sports in her childhood, but gravitated toward tennis rather late in the game, wound up developing pretty quickly and 
played college tennis at Rice University and had a phenomenal college career. She's lived all over the world, literally, and is back in Houston now where she is running her local NJTL chapter. She's coaching uh, junior team tennis teams. She's coaching individual players. And she's also very involved with the USTA's Net Generation program. So without further ado, my conversation with Ellen Miller. Be sure and check out the show notes so that you have her contact info. Ellen Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because we got to each other when I posted something on Facebook looking for guests for the podcast, and you answered the call, and you have such a wide experience range in the sport of tennis, but also in other sports. And so I think, you know, your story is one that is going to be really helpful to the Parenting Aces audience. So thank you for doing this. And let's start out by having you tell us how you got to tennis. Wow. Well, I, I grew up in the years of, you know, Chrissy Everett and, uh, you know, Tracy Austin playing when tennis took up took off in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, my dad loved tennis. He played all sorts of sports, loved tennis. I was actually a swimmer up until that point and uh, took up tennis. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, so I learned how to hit on the wall, on my basement wall, and I do that for hours on end. So kind of taught myself how to play tennis and um, made the switch over. When I was about 13, I switched over to tennis permanently and uh, and just, you know, it took off. I still played other sports in high school, though, basketball, softball. I was an all-sport athlete. And, um, but then, you know, took it a little bit further, got very focused, and um, attended Rice University on a scholarship and played tennis there for four years. So, um, yeah, it's been a great journey. That's fantastic. And now you're a coach. Yes. Uh, I've been coaching off and on over 30 years. And I say off and on because we lived overseas for about 12 of those years uh, in Germany and Switzerland. And I had four kids, so, you know, I had to sort of juggle a lot of things at home. But uh, got back into it bit by bit, mostly part-time when we lived in uh, the Woodlands, Texas. And then got more into it full-time when we moved up to Washington, D.C. And uh, now I work full-time for the Houston Tennis Association, NJTL, and direct uh, a competitive program for them. And I'm also in charge of their coaching education. What has been, in your opinion, the most significant change in the way we develop players in this country? One of the things that I've seen, um, especially for the young children, uh, getting more and more into tennis, as we say, is this focus on just tennis and it's this race to get really really good really really fast and I don't think that people realize that tennis is a sport where you know the average age of the players men or women are between the ages of let's make it a random big number because I know what the average number is but between 25 and 27 it's it's an older number and I think you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on these kids to to develop so quickly and 
you know, pulling them out of school to be homeschooled and uh, sending them to academies to, you know, pulling them away from their families. And I think it's, it might be good for some kids, but it, it, it's an eye-opening experience for a lot of parents. And to be honest, it scares a lot of parents. Mm-hmm. So I, I would have to say that's probably the biggest thing. And it pulls these kids into the sport solely. In other, in other words, they give up any other sports that they might be able to do. And I'm not totally sure that that's a good thing. Uh, I think we see repetitive use injuries. We see, see kids burn out. Um, I think you also see kids come up through the sport who don't benefit from other sports. The movement abilities that they pick up from other sports, like say from basketball or, you know, the strength aspects coming out of maybe a track and field, um, sprinting, running activities. So I think it's a consideration that we need to look at very closely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research out there now about early specialization and its harmful effects. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about we've got to develop the athlete first, the tennis player second. And you work with players who are coming into the sport for the first time, most of them, right? I mean, you're, you're working Correct. with, yeah. Um, and, and so how do you guide families around that? We have a, a, a burgeoning, a blooming 10 and under program where I am. And I consider myself sort of a, you know, a developmental coach, a 10 and under coach. And then, of course, I, I am high performance certified and played in college and all that. So I can coach all the way up with these kids. But, but I do think um, some of my expertise lies in coaching the young kids. And so I always encourage the parents to let the kids do other sports. I mean, we have a couple kids, like one of the little boys, uh, he does soccer so we don't see him as much as some of the other kids um and uh, some of our other kids play volleyball different sports and I try to you know hear my inner voice saying it's okay for them to do this and sometimes it's hard because I know they're missing practice but I do know you know this little boy who plays soccer for instance has fabulous footwork on the court so he's he's going off and doing another sport that makes him happy and then those skills directly translate into his tennis Mm -hmm. so I know we're still getting that benefit He's just doing something else that day. And I think it's important to keep that in mind, that we want the kids to be happy. And young children don't necessarily know what sport they want to pick. And they need to, they need to keep going along their two tracks or three tracks, whatever they have. And then at some point, they'll make their decision. And I think it's important to also remember that we can't force that decision. That's ultimately their decision and probably falls a little bit with their family as well. But um, we want to keep them happy in the sport, particularly tennis for us, and and hope eventually that they'll make the decision to stay with us. How do you manage expectations, though? So let's say, for example, this little boy that's playing soccer, too. I'm assuming that his peers in your tennis program who aren't playing another sport, they're maybe playing tournaments, they're winning trophies, they're coming back on Monday and, you know, all happy about that. And your soccer player may not be doing that, that same level of competitive activity in tennis because he's also doing soccer. I mean, there's, there's got to be some frustration on the parents part, I would think, because maybe some of this little boy's peers are moving along quicker than he is, but how do you explain to them that, listen, by the time it's important, which is, let's face it, 15, 16 with 
college recruiting, that's when it really becomes important. You know, things will level out if if your son decides to stick with tennis. Right. And and that is that is entirely possible. And, you know, this little boy and a couple of the kids that we have doing two sports, it's interesting because they remind me a lot of myself growing up. I was just a real good athlete, you know, playing sports. I played so many of them. And this little boy is a terrific athlete. And what's happened so far is he's been able to hang with the kids. He's able to stay on par with them. And then we've gotten them, the kids into JTT. And so the kids, we did a 10 and under uh, orange ball team. And he was able to play with the kids on Sundays because the soccer games are on Saturday. So they're double teaming it, which is kind of interesting. And so right now he's able to do it. And some of our other kids are able to do it as well. So fortunately, he hasn't fallen behind. He's pretty much at the top of the pack still. But it is a consideration. And I think it's one of those things that you do have to look closely at is, you know, is this child going to slip behind a little bit? But on the other hand, I still look at it as, as, a, um, as a double bonus that he's doing both these sports. They're both benefiting his tennis probably more than it's benefiting soccer. But, um, you know, to do the two sports. But uh, right now he's so young, you know, he's, he's 10 and he has so much time. You know, I feel like the kids have so much time and I tell them all the time, even our older kids, look, you need to go through your first years of high school. You don't need to worry so much about what your results are going to give you. We need to be more process oriented. So worry about, are we developing that slice backhand? You know, are we developing that, that key second serve? And I tell the kids having dealt with, college recruiting if these kids want to go on to college it doesn't really matter that much until you're in your junior year of of high school I mean I've seen that play out for both of my kids who played NCAA sports so I keep telling them you've got a lot of time you know just to be doing the right things to stay in the game and develop your game and I think that will work out and so far you know I've been lucky with the kids I've worked with and how is the communication with the parents though because a lot of times the kids get it, but the parents don't. Yeah. I mean, our parents, the parents that are, that are doing multiple things, they, they get it. You know, I think they've heard enough in the media that, oh, you know, you need to focus really soon on your sport and, and, and this is what's out there and college scholarships. You, you better be focused by the time you're, you know, seven. And there's all this crazy stuff out there. But I think the parents, there were a lot of dialogue. I've talked with the parents through this. and. Um, we're in a good place. You know, I let them know that as long as they stay committed, you know, to our sport, to what we're doing and, you know, can continue to hang with the kids that he's playing with, which are orange ball kids right now, he's just getting ready to move up to green. Um, you know, we're okay with it. Uh, they know. And I think, you know, a lot of the parents when they're talked to and made to understand what the process is, I, I think they're okay with it. You know, it calms them down a little bit. You know, the dialogue with parents is so critical. And I think that so many of them, it's been interesting to me because I do early development camps. I'm on the player development side of the USDA um, as a faculty coach. And there I've gotten a great opportunity to work with parents. And we're doing a lot of parent education to tell the parents that, you know, it's not a race to the yellow ball. We want the kids to go through red, orange, and green. And we want these kids to play the level ball that they're competent at. And we'll get to yellow. And I've learned a lot through the early development camps because we do evaluations for the parents. And we talk to the parents about all of this. And it's interesting. Once the parents are on the page with you and they understand what's going on, they actually back off a little bit. 
and they and they 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 defer to you. They realize that you have a game plan, that you understand what you're talking about, and they're they're like, okay, we'll go along with this. This sounds plausible. Just tell us what else we need to do. And I think that's incredibly important is to keep that communication line open, and actually to have started it in the first place. Well, absolutely. And, and that's a common theme that runs through the Parenting Aces podcast is the yeah. importance of good communication between coach and parent, between coach and player, player and parent, um, everybody involved. And one of the things that it sounds like you're doing really well is establishing a firm level of trust from day one. And I think when parents understand what the coach's plan is. Like you said, you present a game plan to them, they buy into that, then they have trust in you to execute that, to keep them apprised of what's happening, to stay accountable for their child's progress. And it's easier as a parent to step back and entrust your child with a coach when that coach is communicating with you on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny, too, because when I coached up at, um, I was up at the JTCC in Maryland for almost five years. And it's funny, I'm still in touch with all those families that I coached up there. And many of them, I coached not just their first and second child, but, you know, their third and fourth child. So, you know, that relationship for me has been longstanding, you know, and some of these kids are, you know, playing in national tournaments now. Some of the kids I've worked with over the years are going off to college. So, it's really important to me to keep that relationship up. And even the parents that I don't work with now, because I live in Texas, you know, know that they can email me and shoot a message my way and ask for some advice. And uh, it's critical because I think, you know, you, it's for all of us, whatever we're doing, it's always nice to have sounding boards and to bounce things off of people. But again, to have that, that critical dialogue, because it is complicated. The world is going so fast and there's so many demands upon us and on our kids and I think if we can if we can have, you know, that communication open and have that sounding block, it just makes life a whole lot easier. Absolutely. One of your roles is that you're the director of coaching education and player development for Houston's NJTL. And I would love for right. you to talk a little bit about the NJTL and what it does and you know what role it plays in your community. Yeah, so the NJPL in Houston um, serves the greater part of Houston, which if you can imagine, um, I think it's the third largest state, maybe the city, maybe it's the fourth. But anyway, we're talking a big city, big uh, square radius. So we reach a lot of kids. Uh, we reach over 3,000 kids a year. Um, and, you know, our kids day is 1,000 kids. So we're reaching kids from all different backgrounds all over the city. And our programs take place in the Houston City Parks uh, sites at their tennis courts. So we are um, all around Houston. And um, I believe we have something like 32 sites, if I'm not mistaken. So we have quite a few coaches in the summer. We bump up to around 60 coaches. So we have a, we reach a lot of kids. And it's really exciting for me to reach those kids and to work with those kids because we're talking about a subset of the tennis population that doesn't often get, you know, to play tennis. And we want them to have the highest quality tennis program we possibly can. And that's another thing, you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard when you have a group of kids at a Houston park and you have high numbers, 
you know, because our programs are free for the kids. So, you know, we work hard with the coaches to make sure that they can, you know, that they know how to work with big groups of kids. We put the new next generation curriculum, the community curriculum into play this, this summer and we're continuing this fall. And it's been huge for us. You know, it, it's, it's preset lessons and they're really fun, really fun games, really fun athletic skill development activities. So it's been wonderful. So we're building up our Houston park site and our goal out of that is to take these kids that come to these city park sites and then build what we would call a tournament players group out of that. So take the kids who really love the game, who want to take their game to the next level. And then I'm in charge of that tournament players group. And so we just started it last year and uh, we've had tremendous success. Some of the kids went out to play some of their first tournaments in JTT and uh, we did really well. The kids finished at the top of the JTT pile, you know, for their age groups. And uh, we've had a couple tournament wins and kids finishing, you know, they belong in these tournaments. You know, they're getting through to the third round, fourth round. Some of them are losing the first round, but they're winning in consolation. So we're in there. And that's what's so exciting for these kids is that they're getting that chance that other kids get all the time. Well, we all know how expensive junior tennis development can yeah. be. So, I mean, I think it's awesome that that you guys are running these free programs. What kind of financial support do these kids get that are moving into your high-performance tournament group? They get support from many places. I know the USTA is very generous to our foundation. Um, Chase, the bank, uh, Chase Bank has also mm-hmm. been very generous. Um, and and we're now the sole beneficiary of the um, the U.S. Men's Clay Court Championships that are held just around the corner from us at River Oaks Country Club. And um, we are also the beneficiary of some other events. Um, around town, which really helps us. And uh, then we do a big gala every year that also brings in funds. And then the Houston Tennis Association runs women's leagues. And much of the proceeds from those um, events and tournaments comes our way for the kids. So it's really kind of it's this big group effort, if you will, that funnels money over to our NJTL. And I'll tell you something, it's been a godsend for us. You know, I mean, the kids that I work with are just, I mean, first of all, some of them are phenomenal athletes. They love the game. They want to play. And so we scramble, you know, to make sure that they have car rides just to get to practice. I mean, some of the families have one car, you know, that they have the ability to get to a tournament, you know, so we, you know, our families look out for each other. It's a different dynamic than you see at a club. And it's a lot more work. I'll tell you that much. Um, But it is incredibly rewarding. That's for sure. That's fantastic. I, I'm just, I'm so thrilled to hear that y'all have the support financially that you need to help these kids really, you know, grow and progress and thrive in the sport. Because I think traditionally in many communities, NJTLs are set up and, and the mission of the NJTL is so fantastic. But if the funding isn't there to support the kids that are coming into the programs, then, you know, they really can't do their work. And I I just, I think it's fantastic that y'all have the support that you just mentioned. I mean, the corporate sponsorship, the event sponsorship, the USTA sponsorship, the local community. I mean, it's just, 
awesome to hear. I'm I'm thrilled because this is not a common story. Yeah, no, it, it is, and and um, you know, it's it's it really is. As I said, it's this coming together of a lot of people who are passionate about tennis, and um, we had um, two courts over at our Sunnyside um, facility in Houston that were in need of repair. And last year, the it was a, it was a conglomeration of professional men's players who um, put money together to help us resurface those courts. They all played at the, at the uh, clay court championship this past April, and they put together money so that we could resurface the courts. And so the kids got to go out and hit with them. And it was just, it was just terrific. I mean, it was, so generous of these guys to, to contribute back to us. And, and even, you know, getting the courts obviously is going to allow many, many, many more kids to learn how to play, but also just the kids who are with these pros on the court, you know, they were just, it was so exciting for them. So they kind of see what, you know, and one of the pros, Francis Tiafo took one of our little boys aside and said, Hey, you know, you could be, you could be a good player. You know, if you work on a couple things, you know, and that means so much to these kids. You know, they look up to these guys with, you know, wide eyes. And um, so every little bit helps. Every little I, bit helps us. I totally remember when that happened last year. And um, yeah. it was all over social media. It was really awesome. And, um, yeah, I mean, some of the players on the Pro Tour really have the biggest hearts. And, understand the importance of giving back. And I'm just always so excited when, when I get news of that, because I think it speaks volumes about our sport and the people who participate in our sport. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to switch, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, if you don't mind, Ellen. And I want to talk about now your role as a tennis parent, because you have four children, which, oh my God, (laughs) (laughs) And um, out of the four, you have one who is currently playing college tennis, but you, your other, all your kids have been involved in sport. So I'd love to hear about your experience as a parent, bringing up your kids in the sport. And then let's kind of talk about the recruiting process a bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sports, you know, I always say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I played so many sports growing up. I think in high school, I think I played five sports. Um, but I, I loved so many sports. It was hard to, to pick. And um, my kids were, you know, raised in that same vein. So they all did multiple sports growing up. All of them swam. Um, and then they branched out into their, their uh, respective sports. And uh, my oldest son played uh, collegiate golf at University of Maryland. And um, my daughter now is playing collegiate tennis at St. Francis University just outside Pittsburgh. And so, you know, having played sports as long as I had and then played in college, I knew, you know, a little bit about what to expect. But, um, you know, we learned a lot through my son, you know, through the recruiting process. He was a very good golfer, probably top, he was top 75 when, the, when he was recruited. And um, so it was, you know, we learned a lot there. And um, he, like what? When we got to, um, the importance of knowing who you're going to play for. I mean, one of the things I always say to parents is, is when you decide you want to play a sport in college, you are no longer just a student. You are now a student athlete. And I've always told my kids, you need to understand that you have two jobs in school now. 
you need to go in there and make sure that you are academically eligible to play a sport. And that means you need to be responsible and not get sidelined by too much, you know, college stuff so that you stay eligible, you're ready to play, you show up, you're ready to play on the weekend or whatever you compete, and that you um, you do both of these things really well. You have to keep your studies up to be eligible. You need to keep your sports up to keep your scholarship. And so there's two very distinct, although intertwined jobs that you have. And so we learned that through my son. And, you know, he was he played with an individual on his team who became academically ineligible his junior year. And, you know, this this boy was a top 10 golfer in the country. I mean, we're talking a legitimate player. And, you know, my son saw that what happens when you don't keep both of these up. And so, you know, my daughter coming into college, you know, later than her brother, she knew that whole story. She had heard lots of stories about that. So you need to pay attention to that as a parent. And you also need to make sure that you you know who the coach is. Is the coach going to be, you know, fair and transparent? so that your child gets to play based on their merit, based on what they bring to the table. And then you also have to look at the university and say, hey, you know, is the university going to be able to support my child in the sport when they're there, if they need help? I mean, my son ran into it a little bit in Maryland. Uh, He got a lot of help. They were actually pretty good, but he was a chemical engineering major. I think he was the only engineering major in their golf team in the history of their team. And so, you know, it made it difficult getting him tutors in, you know, um, some of these really difficult classes. So um, those are things to keep in mind, I think, as a parent, uh, because it's, uh, and I think the other thing you have to keep in mind, and this is something I looked at very, very closely, was is your child going to be able to compete on the team that they want to play on? And I think so many people make that mistake, that they, oh, I want to go to this university, but is your child actually going to be able to play there? And, or is, they, or is your child going to be able to handle the academics and the play? So those are really important considerations that we looked at very closely. Interesting. And what is different between recruiting for golf and recruiting for tennis? I mean, first of all, you had a son in golf and a daughter in tennis. So there are the gender issues that are different. But, um, you know, from from a sports point of view, are there differences? You know, there there probably are a little bit. I mean, golf is so it's so finite in a way because you're playing against a course, you know what I mean? You're playing against a golf course. And then when you, you get your results, it shows that, Hey, you shot even par on, you know, this particular golf course and you won this particular tournament playing against these players. So sometimes I think it, it is a little bit, it is a little bit easier, but I also think that um, coaches can go out and see the kids play for golf and they, watch an individual and they can sort of see their game or they're great, you know, they have a great short game, you know, to back up a really long game or what type of a player they are. But I do think it probably is a little bit, a little bit more finite. It's kind of a fine line, but I would say golf is maybe a little bit more finite. You can see what the person is ranked at and based on all these other kids, you can see what tournaments they won, who was in that field. Um, So you can see that they've beat, beaten some good players in a field at a tournament even though they didn't directly compete head to head like a tennis player does. And um, so tennis is a little bit different too. And I think, um, I know tennis is also a sport that I see kids evolving a lot and maybe not more so than golf, but a little differently because it is competing against a player who's always an unknown and 
I see tennis players' games evolving maybe even a little bit more over the years than maybe a golfer does. Obviously, a golfer's mental aspect gets tougher, and, and they develop more shots as they go along. But tennis is just, is just different because you play against somebody, and, and it, makes it, it makes it a little bit harder in that respect. Right. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, it's a tough question for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, the sports are very different. Um, they are. And, you know, I, again, the gender issue is there. And especially when it comes down to scholarships and what's yep. available to boys versus what's available to girls. But so I, as your daughter was getting ready to go through recruiting, um, when you and I were talking offline, you were telling me that because she was a two sport athlete, that added a challenge to the recruiting process. And I'd love for you to talk about that because I think it's something that we don't discuss enough. And I would love for you to share how you and your daughter managed that when she was actually going through recruiting. Yeah. I mean, her story is really fascinating because she started out as a little four-year-old, you know, we used to sneak her onto the courts and let her play in the group. She wasn't supposed to be there because she was too young, but in any case, she started as a very young child and, and was a very, very good athlete. Um, she did swimming as well. And then as she got older, she still played a lot of tennis. That was pretty much mostly her sport, but she got into softball and late. She got into softball, like uh, her seventh and eighth grade. Um, and she played on a rec league. And then in high school, she went into play on a travel team. And then she played on her high school team. So it was kind of late in her career that she got kind of focused on softball. But I think at some level, she had done tennis all of her life because I was on the court and she loved tagging along with me and her older sister played. And so she kind of got, she was just there. She was just in it. And um, when softball came around, she really wanted to play, especially she got better. And she was, she was a funny player too, because her her swing looked an awful lot like a forehand, you know, but she was a real good hitter. She had that mentality that, hey, I can hit this ball. I've been hitting balls all, all my life and uh, wound up being the catcher on the team. But what was really fascinating is she decided that she was going to take some time away in high school from competitive tennis. And um, so I said, you know what, do it. You know, this, this is your choice. It's not mine. This has nothing to do with me. So she did it, and I heard a lot of flack from the coaches. Why are you letting her do this and whatnot? But she needed it. I think she needed to see if she could do other sports and prove to herself. And it was kind of funny as she played softball, she was the catcher, and she would just – it was a team sport too, so it was different. And uh, she'd be roasting to death underneath her catching gear, and the girls out in the outfield would be, you know, letting balls drop or wouldn't be putting their best effort forth. And she got kind of tired of the, the – the team aspect of softball and she wanted to go back to tennis she said I think I really want to go back to tennis I'm okay losing I can blame myself whatever but I think I want to do that I think this is what I want to do so she did that her coming into her junior year she decided she was going to go back to tennis full-time so as you can imagine in terms of college recruitment you know that's it's a little bit later than most people start thinking about it so we had a little bit of work to do and and so, so what did I mean, how did you, how did she get on the radar? You know, it was really interesting. And this was probably the best part of the story was that it became her mission. It was her mission to get on the radar screen. And so I was coaching her a lot at that point, helping her. She has a one-handed backhand that I taught her. She, 
kind of a unique player, but, um, you know, we worked a lot on that and on her slice, getting her ready. We kind of fine tuned her game. And then I set her off with a, an area pro. And I said to him, look, she just needs to hit with somebody. She needs a lot of sparring time. Just go out there and ace her, go out there and hit your kick serve to her, go out and slice a lot of balls to her, make her understand how to play. And we did a lot of that her last year and a half. And she wound up getting back into tournaments and her ranking just started to go up. Now she didn't get out of high school with, you know, as a four-star recruit. I think she only made it as a three-star recruit. But what she was was a really good athlete who really wanted to play. And um, she took it upon herself to email every coach she talked to in the recruiting process. I did absolutely nothing. In fact, I didn't even know who she was talking to. But what she did was really interesting. She went and looked at the kids she was as good at and looked at where they went to play and where they were playing in the lineup. She looked at kids she had beaten before and where they were playing. And she looked at kids that she lost to, but close losses and saw where they were playing. And she put this little spreadsheet together and sort of did her own homework and, and reached out to some of these coaches. And sadly, some of them just slammed the door in her face and said, you know, you're not high enough ranked. You know, you, you know, you have this great resume, but we're not interested. Some didn't even write her back. And, um, you know, the couple coaches took an interest in her and uh, we had made a video for her that she sent out and, um, she, you know, she started talking to the coach, particularly at St. Francis and he loved her athleticism and loved her, you know, her determination to sort of steamroll ahead this late in the game and they hit it off great. And that's where she wound up going. And she's a scholarship player there at that school. So it was a perfect fit. You know, like I said, it was a coach who recognized that this kid really wants to play. And I'll tell you something, that coach is so lucky to have her because she's now the team captain and uh, her game has steadily taken off. And she does, you know, she has seen some of her fellow players who have burned out in college and they don't, aren't really that interested in playing anymore. But like I said, she's still on that upward. She's a senior now, but she's still making improvements to her game and loves the sport and is a great leader for her team. That's a great story, Ellen. I yeah. love it. it I is. love it. And and what what's her major and what is she thinking is going to happen when she's done, hopefully, in the spring? Yeah, not surprisingly. She's a funny kid. She, you know, she's sort of created her own major. She started out as a criminal justice major. And as she's gone along, she changed her major. It's a human, she's human rights and Spanish, and she has a minor in business. And last summer, she did an internship down in Bogota, Colombia at CODIS. And I couldn't even tell you how to pronounce the, the name of this, this company, but she did an internship and they do human rights uh, issues, uh, particularly down in Colombia. And she got to work with them for um, several weeks and improved her Spanish and uh, saw firsthand that this is what she wants to do. And she'd like to ultimately work for a place like the UN mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and work in any types of, any type of human rights issues that she can find. So um, yeah, so she's even able, been able to believe it. It's a little bit of an unusual major, but she's already been able to do an internship and put this job to work. As you look at the world today, you can understand that human rights is front and center in a lot of what's going on in the world. So, you know, it being a relatively new major at just a handful of universities, 
I mean, I, I think she's going to be gainfully employed. So, um, and she's very passionate about it. That's fantastic. I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and she's continued to play tennis and she's continued to play an integral role on her college team at the same time. So she has really embraced that whole notion, as you said, of you have two jobs, (laughs) you're a student and you're an athlete. And, and it sounds like she's really maximized both of those. So kudos to her. I'm going to keep an eye on her and, and see what, where she winds up. Uh, She sounds like a really interesting young woman. So congratulations, mom. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, So let's get back to the coaching just a bit and, um, and we'll start to wrap things up here. But as a coach who has parented her own tennis player and, and other athletes, what is the advice that you would give to parents whose children are just getting started in the sport? I would say, look at the long picture, you know, um, it's a big, long road. I have a lot of children I work with that are eight and seven. It's a long road. I mean, it's a long road for them to even get to playing in college, you know, and obviously this isn't even on the radar for them just yet, but even if it were, you know, it's a long road just to get there. You're talking 10 years. And um, we want the kids to be happy in the sport. You know, sport is for a lifetime, especially sports like golf and tennis. You can play them for your life. And I think it's so important for the families to understand that you want to have a relationship with your kids forever. You know, I've seen, I've seen sports ruin family relationships. I played with teammates who had their family dynamic ruined by sports. It's not worth it. You know, I, and I think what we need to tell our kids is that you're in it for the process. It's just like school. You're not going to learn everything in fifth grade that you need to learn by the time you get to college. You're going to learn something in fifth grade, sixth grade. And tennis is very much a process. You, you need to keep going along and keep making improvements to the game. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to do another sport. You know, it's okay to have friends and go out and go out with your friends one weekend and not, not do a tournament, you know. As you get closer to that goal, if you want to play college tennis, yes, you need to increasingly do a little bit more, play more tournaments, you know, maybe do a little bit more training as you get closer to that, to, to, to hone your skills. But I think we just have to remember it is a long process and we have to, it's really hard to, 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 to keep kids in the sport and not have them burn out. And it's, it's, I, I guarantee you any coach will say that, that that's a fine line that they walk. And like I said, you just have to make sure that the kids have other interests. And I always told my own kids, look, you do so many things well. This is just one of those things that you do well. And some days you're not going to do it well, but just remember you're a bigger person than just your golf game. You know, you're a great son and daughter, a great sibling, a great friend to people. And, you, you know, you're a good student and all the other things that they do well. And, and, and we just need to remind kids that. Um, and I think that the whole idea of staying process oriented and not so goal oriented early on is critical for these kids. Some of these kids get so much pressure locked on them so early. You've got to win this tournament and you've got to do well. I put some, I, I had a little boy. He actually wasn't that little. He was about 14 and his parents were getting on him because they weren't getting the tournament results that he wanted. I mean, you can imagine how this, this kid feels. And so there was all this pressure now from his parents that, you know, all this money and you're not yielding the results. It's, it's incredibly defeating for a child, you know, and, and this, this kid had a lot of potential, but he just, there needed to be some more dialogue with the parents and, 
Um, and, and with this child that, look, we're going to stay on this process goal. We're going to add this and this to your game and we're going to make these changes that we need to do. And maybe we pull you out of tournaments for the immediate future and make these changes and then go back at it. There just needs to be a good, a good dialogue, you know, keep that communication open and, um, you know, just make sure that the dialogue between the parent and the kids is open, you know, sure. know what your kids need. Where are they? Are they feeling burned out? Do they need a break? Do they... Um, you know, do they want to try another sport? I think that's so critical because we're not going to get championship players out of kids who are putting half of an effort out there. It's just not going to happen. But if kids can find their own happy medium where they're able to do both and they're willing to take that challenge, sometimes that works better than just doing the one sport. You have to, you have to know your kid. You have to talk about it. And as I say repeatedly, the communication is the key on everybody's part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I especially love <laughs> what you said about it's okay to take a break. And that's a lesson that I learned too late with my child. And it's one that I try to uh, to talk about often now for parents coming up because the burnout thing is real. It's the injury yeah. thing is real. And, you know, talk about expensive. I mean, once your child is injured and you start looking at physical therapy and, and all of those things, I mean, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And besides which we want our kids to stay healthy. We want them to be able to, to move and to, you know, enjoy life and have their body be in one piece. So, um, I think taking that break, I, the biggest lesson that, that I wish I had learned is that that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's I, okay. Agree. I agree. And my son was fortunate to do that. Um, because he was, he was playing golf, but we lived in the mid Atlantic where you had snow in the winter, so they couldn't play golf very much. So he was actually, um, on his swim team in high school and, uh, was the captain of the team and, and he was a mighty good swimmer. Uh, And, uh, but what was great about that is he got to be with different friends and he was still working on his conditioning and swimming as a top sport from a conditioning standpoint. So he came out to that golf then in the spring and just, you know, knocked it out of the park. He was fully conditioned. He had had a break from the sport and he was ready to go. And that was so critical. But I also think that I uh, used to know a coach up in the woodlands, uh, not far from Houston who um, he, every year, his kids, he was a high school coach. They won the 5A cross country title. And he used to say to his kids and the parents all the time, the rest is as important as the training. And you need to understand that. And particularly sports like cross country where there's that constant pounding. But, you know, let's face it, tennis isn't very far behind with that constant, constant pounding right. on the court. And so I always remembered his words that the rest is as important, is as important as the training and you, you have to give kids this they're growing their bodies are taking a pounding um and again going back to that swimming and, and golf two very different sports you're using different muscles but you're doing some conditioning that great conditioning and you know core body strength is definitely going to translate from a swimmer to a golfer so those kinds of things are incredibly advantageous and um you know i know it for myself because i'm a competitive swimmer still and compete on the master circuit and I know how much swimming has helped my tennis. I mean, my footwork on the court is better than it was in college because my ankles are so much stronger. You know, there's such a direct translation from so many sports. 
And uh, again, that break, you know, people forget that it's, it's not just the, the physical break that your body's taking a pounding, but it's the mental break, you know, just to shut down for a little bit, do something else, focus on something else, not have to, you know, be juggling tennis and, and school and be able to, you know, like my daughter talks about it. She goes, it's weird when we go to our off season and, and I don't have that much training right now. And she goes, it's interesting just to be a student, you know, again, and just to be, so it, it, it is, it is an adjustment, but it's, it's also very positive. Absolutely. It's, it's very important. Absolutely. Very well, important. Ellen Miller, I, you sound like an amazing coach and an amazing parent. And I'm so thrilled that we connected and that we've had the opportunity to chat. If the Parenting Aces community wants to reach out to you, how, where can they find you? Uh, they can reach me at the NJTL. I'm happy to give you my email, which I know you already have. So actually feel free to use that. Send okay. information out. I'm always willing to help people. And as I said, you know, we've been through it with our kids, especially like the college recruiting. And um, it's a daunting experience. You know, all of this is the whole process is. And, um, you know, if you consider yourself lucky that you've gotten through it, you know, we pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, we did it, you know, but I'm absolutely help, happy, happy to help anybody out because it, it is something that, um, you know, obviously you don't have experience with when you start out. So it is a it is a daunting experience. So absolutely, you know, send my email out, let people reach out to me. I'm happy to help any way I can. Fantastic. So to my listeners, we will have Ellen's email address in the show notes. So be sure and check those out on parentingaces.com. And also, if you guys are interested in getting involved with NJTL, um, if you'd like to volunteer or make a donation, I'm sure Ellen would be happy to field your emails inquiring about that as well. That'd be great. Yeah, we love any support we can have. And even so much of our organization, and I can probably speak for any NGTL in the country, that we have a lot of volunteers, you know, and we love tennis volunteers. I mean, we host so many events and tournaments, and we have our kids day, and any volunteers who know the sport of tennis, oh my gosh, they're a godsend. <laughs> so um, some of it doesn't even have to be, you know, financial, anything like that. But like I said, warm bodies help us tremendously, and uh, they're, they're wonderful assets to our kids because they can tell the kids a little bit about their playing experience. So yes, you know, please reach out to us. We would love any support. Fantastic. Well, again, Ellen, thank you so much for doing the podcast this week. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast for tennis parents by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.